Hey everybody, this is a special uh, one-off episode, um, and it's not actually going to be me reading a story this time. This is the first episode of The Reignition Theory. It's the very first audio fiction voice acting thing that I was ever cast in, and I've really been looking forward to its release because I really like the story, uh, and I think you will too. It's uh, it's really good, it's really exciting and intriguing, and um, I, think, I think you're going to love it. Um, but this is the first episode. If you want to uh, continue on with the story, you can find it. Um, uh, just search for Reignition Theory on whatever podcatcher you use, and you should be able to find it. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, and I will see you next week. Just over a year ago, I was sitting in a coffee house that I frequent often, sometimes to write, sometimes just to relax. This was a writing day, so when someone sat down in the chair next to me in a virtually empty room, I was not eager for the company. I turned to face the man, prepared to politely ask him to find another seat, and I was somewhat taken aback by what I saw. Most of the customers of this coffee house are not dissimilar to me, reasonably affluent artistic types, and this man was not one of those. He was very pale and, quite frankly, looked ill. He had thick, dark shadows under his eyes and several small scars on his face. His dark blonde hair was receding, but long and tied back. His eyes were severe and serious. This man was on important business. Mason Canrich, he said, stating my name. You write about Korriban. Neither of these were questions. My eyes flicked down to his hands, expecting to see a knife or even a gun, but there was no weapon. I asked him what he wanted, but he ignored my question. I've read your book, he said, and withdrew a battered paperback copy which he placed on the table. I laughed nervously, hoping against hope that this was some kind of eccentric fan only wanting an autograph. It's wrong, he stated simply. I reached out and took hold of the book. It was filled with scraps of paper and had extensive notes written in a neat, small hand. These notes filled the margins of each page as well. Normally. I am not someone who seeks confrontation, but this insult against my work riled me and I asked him how he knew. I was there, said the man. There were survivors of the ignition, of course, but not many. I was tempted to argue with the man, but he didn't strike me as a liar. I chose my next words carefully and asked what I had gotten wrong, telling him I was eager to improve my work. Most of it is wrong, said the man. That's not what happened. It's not how it happened. Worst of all, it's not why it happened. He put a leather satchel on the table. He gestured for me to open it. Slowly, I did. Inside were several notebooks and recording cylinders. That is what really happened. To say the least, I was intrigued. Many a historian would not be best pleased should someone claim they actually knew what happened in an event they had written so much about. But I'm different. This was not to do with morals or principles, but simply because I was obsessed with the ignition, and if I had missed something, I had to know. I spent most of the next month talking to this man. He said his name was Ciro Arente, a Kasyrene by birth who had worked at his nation's embassy in Korriban, and, well, I'll let him tell the rest of the story. 
Most of the rest of what you will hear is from my own notes, but I have added extracts from relevant sources to put things in the right context. Speaking of which, as some listeners may have not even been alive when Korriban existed, I give you an extract from Hermes Dallon's magnificent book, Korriban, An Introduction. The city has gone by many names, but the one I think suits it best is the throne of the world. Since its founding, over 30 different nations, kingdoms, and empires had held the city, and for many, possession of Korriban meant that they had reached the pinnacle of power. Emperor Jace Duran said that his whole empire was meaningless before he captured Korriban. It has been a dream and an obsession. Most recently, the city has been part of the Yeralan Empire and was of huge importance. The city's position on the edge of two continents, with harbors into the Covian and Harlak Seas, its strategic importance and ability to dominate trade routes, makes possession of the city invaluable. In 1857, its population was 5 million people, making it the largest city in the world. To speak of a single people, language, or culture of Korban is pointless. It was founded thousands of years ago by Tarakans, and since then, every people of the world has immigrated to the city, as well as conquerors, refugees, mercenaries, and more. It is undoubtedly the most diverse city in the world, and just wandering the streets for an hour, you will hear a dozen languages. In the 17th century, when ownership of the city changed six times, the people decided that they would adopt a policy of reasonable collaboration, meaning that whoever ruled the city would not be faced by a resistance, and instead they would collaborate with their new rules within reason. Of course, while possessing the city was of huge political, cultural, and financial gain, it was not an easy place to rule. The inhabitants are famously unruly. Protests and riots are common. The system of fortifications that surround the city are not aimed at foreign invaders, but instead are designed to control the population. A series of internal city walls split the city into more manageable districts. In the event of rioting, it would be harder for rioters to coordinate their efforts, and easier for the army to put down any insurrection. When all this started, I'd been in the city for six years. I worked at the embassy. My official title was cultural resident, but really I was there as a spy. You might imagine a spy as someone who runs across rooftops chasing assassins or getting in gun battles and knife fights. That isn't what I did, and really that's not what spying is. I listened to people. Sometimes it was the wives of busy diplomats or disgruntled soldiers or servants with a grudge. It wasn't always unhappy people. Sometimes they were boasting and proud. Either worked for me. Very occasionally, and I mean this was rare, money or favors would be exchanged for information. Kasaya always has a need for information. People used to ask me about the Room of Information from time to time. The legendary room where all of Kasaya's intelligence is stored, ranging from what type of brandy the Dulat ambassador drinks to who was really the father of Crown Prince Andakov. I don't think it really exists. But the spirit of the Room of Information certainly does. Kasaya has an obsession with information, particularly secrets. You may have noticed something from my introduction. People knew I was a spy. I mean, people have to know who the spies are. How else do they know who to talk to? 
If it was a mystery, people will just be babbling secrets to some poor clerk in an embassy who didn't understand any of it. So yes, people knew I was a spy. And I knew who the other spies were. The Barrist spies, the Vod spies, even the Wiss and their spies, inconsequential as they were. You really had to feel sorry for the Wiss spies. They were more a prestige item than an actual espionage force. Every important nation had spies in Korriban, so they had to have some. I spent as little time in the embassy as possible. I visited parties, restaurants, drinking houses, really just tried to make myself seen and available. One of the dangers of being a spy is that you eat and drink so much, you run the risk of an early grave. So, enough about my former career. How did things begin? Well, as always, things don't begin when you notice them. By the time I became involved, things had been in motion for some time. But I can't really comment too much on that. For me, things started when the soldiers found the body of Antonius Murray. It was in the very early hours of the 15th of April, and I'd been to a ball thrown by the Countess Violina of Glacer, so for me, it felt like a late night. I decided to go to the embassy and sleep there. The Kassarian embassy was huge, as it harked back to better days. A time when a republic built on commerce and banking was naturally very close to such an important trading city. Despite my homeland's reduced status, they had kept up the expensive embassy. I preferred to stay in the apartments I rented on the whole, but I was tired and I was very near the embassy. My plan for getting to sleep was spoiled when my carriage came to a sudden halt just outside the embassy gates. I could hear the driver shouting loudly at someone and then his tone quickly changed and he started apologizing. I already knew who it must be. I leaned out of the door and saw two barrest soldiers approaching my carriage. They snapped back at the carriage driver in their own language. I don't know whether the driver spoke Barrist, but anyone could tell they were unhappy from the tone. In my opinion, understanding some of the local languages was of paramount importance to an occupying army, but the Barrists felt differently, the rank-and-file soldiers seemingly being proud of their ignorance. I called out to the soldiers in their language and asked if I could be of assistance, as I guessed they must have had business with the embassy. The soldiers approached me, and their manner quickly changed from addressing a local who they were free to push round without consequence to someone who might be a bit more powerful. The soldiers asked if I worked in the embassy, and I said I did, and then they asked me if I would recognize Antonius Murray, and I quickly worked out what it was about. Murray had been missing for the past few days, and people had been beginning to worry. Murray was something of a character, and it was not unknown for him to vanish for a little while and then turn up full of other people's secrets. But the embassy had been worried enough to put the word out that he was missing, and really, Murray is too well known in the city to simply disappear. He would be recognized in both ballrooms and brothels. Murray was also the head of embassy spy operations, such as it was, and so my direct superior. I told the soldiers I knew Murray well, and so they told me what I had already worked out. They had found a body. I ran into the embassy to tell them where I was going and to borrow some cash to pay the driver. It's vitally important to always pay your small debts. Waiters, bartenders, carriage drivers, they are incredibly useful people to have on your side. Whereas big debts can usually be safely ignored, for a while anyway. I climbed on board the wagon the soldiers had arrived in, that had caused my carriage to stop so suddenly, and sat opposite the two soldiers as we made our way through the city. 
The soldiers were young men of low rank and probably thought they had a great posting. They weren't freezing to death or catching cholera in Jane or marching through the desert in Karine being shot at by snipers. No, they were in the greatest city in the world, where there hadn't been any fighting in over twenty years. So they marched round the city supremely confident in their own power. One of the soldiers turned to his colleague and started saying something before his colleague shushed him. He was right to do so. When sitting opposite a diplomat, you should say as little as possible. The Divided City by Elizabeth Morisset The government of the Aralan Empire fell so quickly nobody knew what to do. Suddenly there was no one in charge and none of the contenders wanted to put their head into that noose. What happened next was one of the most unseemly, opportunistic and brilliant pieces of power grabbing in the history of humankind. The barrister forces stationed within the city, seemingly acting on no greater authority than an overzealous captain whose name is lost to history, decided to seize the city. They rushed from their barracks and quickly occupied the important government buildings. Tarin Palace, the Ministry of Empire, the Chamber of Speakers, the Imperial Bank and a few other crucial buildings. And at this, believing it was a fait accompli, they stopped. They had shown stunning bravado in doing this, but really it was a job half done, as by doing this they actually controlled only a small part of the city. The Barrists, being illegally minded people, thought this was all they needed. As news reached the other armies stationed within and around the city, most of them were outraged but didn't feel comfortable going up against Barristone. There was one man who would have sacrificed countless lives and millions of ducats purely to spite the Barists. Ovardan II, Emperor of Dravia. The general in command knew what his master would expect and gave the order for his soldiers to seize everything they could, but not to fire a single shot against a foreign soldier. This only sparked a rush of other powers. At the end of this day, Roughly one-third of the city was in the hands of Barristone, a quarter had gone to the Draven Empire and a quarter to the Moriaca, with the remaining scraps of territory going to various smaller powers. And that, more or less, was the state of affairs for 23 years. We headed towards the southern harbour. Despite heading into the busiest part of the city, the wagon barely slowed down, simply expecting everyone to get out of their way, which they more or less did. Whenever dealing with any foreign official or soldier, it is important for a diplomat to uphold the dignity of their country. Yes, Barristone was the richest country in the world, had an empire that circled the globe, and was a world leader in science, trade and industry. But a clever diplomat can get round such details. I had already introduced myself to the soldiers using my full title, Senator and Patrician of Kesiah, letting them know I was of the nobility. These soldiers were clearly not lower-class individuals, and often such people were impressed with these titles. Alternatively, of course, it could infuriate them. But seeing as the soldiers had displayed every deference to me, I assumed it had worked. The wagon stopped, and we jumped out. We were down at the harbour, actually on the beach. I could see further along the beach were a small group of soldiers, and a few feet from them, a curious crowd. The soldiers led me along the beach. I was very conscious that I was still in evening wear and probably seemed mildly ridiculous to all those watching. As I got closer to the crowd, I could see a white sheet was covering something on the ground. 
the body. My escort introduced me to the soldiers at the scene, and the sergeant took over. He knelt down beside the body and grasped the corner of the sheet. He then paused and advised that I prepare myself for something unpleasant. I nodded to him, and he pulled the sheet back. I'd been a little annoyed with the sergeant's warning, thinking that the soldier had assumed I was a weak-hearted civilian, but I should have taken his warning seriously. What the sergeant revealed was a half-naked body with several severe wounds to its torso and a head that had been crushed. The bloody mess of what remained of its face was of no use. The sergeant explained that this was how the body had been found. He lacked any documents that could identify him. He also said something scurrilous about the locals picking the body clean of valuables, so whether this was how it had been left or if it had been robbed by other people, he couldn't say. I pressed my kerchief to my face and knelt by the body. I reached out to touch it and checked with the sergeant this was permissible. He nodded, so I lifted the right arm and turned it over. Two long, faded scars stretched up the forearm, injuries Murray had sustained in a duel years earlier. Of course, Murray had taken every opportunity to show off his scars, and I had heard the ridiculous story of him challenging a local nobleman to a duel when Murray had barely even held a sword before. Still, despite the nobleman winning the duel easily, he had no scars to boast of. I confirmed that it was Murray and explained about the scars. Satisfied, the sergeant replaced the sheet and thanked me for my time. He began to shout orders to his men, and he explained to me that the body would be taken to the city morgue. I surprised him when I asked if I could accompany the body, but he had no reason to refuse, so acquiesced. To this day, I'm still not entirely sure why I asked to accompany the body. Murray and I weren't especially close, but I perhaps felt that he was a fellow countryman far from home. Someone should be with him. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Cambridge was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com. See where Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Chloe Vasco was played by Caroline Minks. Caroline is the person behind the Scary Stories for Modern Minds podcast and is currently working on a new podcast called Seen and Not Heard. Find Caroline on Twitter at Saucy Minks. Elizabeth Morrissey was played by Neris Howell. Find Neris on Twitter at Podnen. Hermes Dallan was played by Daniel Santoy. Find Daniel on Twitter at SantoyVO. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Gavin Crockett. Find Gavin on Twitter at GCrodicMusic or on Instagram at GavinCrodicMusic. Thank you for listening to the Reignition Theory, a thrown together productions show. <laughs>